This is episode 18 of The New Normal with special guest Chad Ketcher. Chad has a career that includes broadcasting, publishing, corporate training, charity, and ministry. He's also an awesome storyteller. He was a very passionate guest speaking on the topic of fatherlessness and the epidemic that is sweeping society, at the root of it being a lack of fathers in the homes of many minorities and even just society as a whole. Enjoy. We are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Welcome to the new normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Each week we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to the new normal. My name is Sal, and with me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's going on, guys? We have a special guest joining us for this post-Father's Day episode. We have some technical difficulties with uh, my tummy and Quentin's tummy on Father's Day. So we're doing this as a post-Father's Day episode with Mr. Chad Ketcher. I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining us on The New Normal. Well, it's a privilege to be here, guys. Uh, I've only heard great things about the new normal. I'm excited about the things that you guys are stepping into and stepping out into, I should say. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And just a little bit of background on Chad. He's got a career that includes broadcasting, publishing, corporate training, charity, and ministry. And of course, Mr. Chad, you are an awesome storyteller. And, and if you haven't guessed it by now, he does have a background in broadcasting. So if, if that voice that comes over the podcast is just soothing and delicious and rich, it's most likely going to be Chad and not me or Quentin. Yeah. <laughs> so, so today's topic is, is going to dive into uh, probably a sensitive topic for a lot of us. So here's your trigger warning if you have daddy issues, because here it is. There's a fatherless epidemic in the United States, and, and I think it would be fair to say across the globe. And it is because of that fatherlessness that we have potentially, depending on which side of the argument you're on, we have a huge disconnect in our society and what's happening in our society. I think most recent events can obviously be talked about with the rioting, the racial divide. Um, I think Quentin, you and I can, can obviously talk about, and, and Chad, we'd love to get your perspective on it, the infiltration, the cultural Marxism that's at the core of you know, the weathermen philosophy, the weathermen infiltration of academia and institutions and how it is affected. And, and it was even in their mission statement to infiltrate the nuclear family. 
And so that's kind of the broad summary of what we want to talk about today. I'm going to turn it over to Chad and just get your perspective on where you stand on, on the fatherlessness issues and where you might think, you know, the new normal as it stands right now for us, the new normal is defined by your mentality and how you approach life and how you look at things in a positive way so that the new normal doesn't have to be this negative thing. There's so many negative connotations when people hear the new normal, especially in the, in the pandemic life that we live in. The new normal is we all have to wear masks or the new normal is we are you know, staying at home for, for the greater good, whatever it might be. So the new normal for us is about positivity and preparedness, philosophy, changing your perspective on things so that the new normal is a good thing. So Chad, without further ado, I want to introduce you to the audience and, and get your perspective on, on where you stand. I know this is a very passionate topic for you. Well, like I said, this is a real honor uh, for me to be able to, uh, to come and, and speak to your audience. I'm, I'm really blessed that you would extend that invitation to me. And oh, just the, with that setup, that great setup that you did, there are a dozen different ways I could go with this. I am spinning from all directions. Um, I think I want to start with this because you mentioned cultural Marxism and infiltration and some of those things. If I were um, an advancing army in ancient times, let's say I'm the Greco-Roman army, I'm, I'm the Persian army, I'm the Medes, I'm the Romans, I'm the, even down into the Crusades. If I were going to go in and conquer a new area and take new territory for my kingdom, what's the first thing I would do? I'd wipe out all the dudes. Kill all the men. And it's not even just soldier for soldier. It's strategic. It's intentional. It's to leave women and children behind. It's to leave fatherless families. This is intentional because they found that, okay, you go in and you kill the army. That's great. What they found, and, and maybe for a few centuries, they started to pick up on the, the dynamic of, hey, if you leave these fatherless families, now you've got these defenseless women and children that we can rape and pillage and, and steal. We can sell the children as sex slaves. We can, you know, we can uh, concubine the wives, whatever. We're leaving these people defenseless. And we are taking the father, and there is absolutely no difference between that philosophy, and now I'm going to take you up to 1990. I'm going to fast forward. Do you remember Run DMC? The rap group. Of course. Of course. Are either of you old enough to remember Run DMC? Okay. Oh, yeah. Walk yeah. this way. You know, everybody's, what was rap music? You know, shake your booty. Hey, look at all the girls. Hey, look at all the fun we're having. Isn't this dope? Aren't we fly? Look at, at YoMTV Rocks, how funny it was. Everything was, you know, remember Will Smith's first few videos, parents just don't understand? Yeah. Take me to 1990. LL Cool J. What was his first single off that uh, California record? No. The, he had a record that comes out about 1989, 90. What was the first single? Mama Said Knock You Out. What was that about? Look at me with my jammy in my hand. I'm going to take you out. I got my nine. I'm going to explode. I'm going to blow people up. I'm coming in to kill people. What? Where did that come from? Mm. Okay, that was a major cultural shift. People miss out on that. They don't see that. They remember maybe some Ice tea, Ice Cube. They remember Dr. Dre. They remember when they switched from, um, you know, um, some of this lighter kind of dance, rap, fun music to all of a sudden this gangster rap. 
Right. It was always very poetic, very culturally relevant and, and standing up for your rights, being fun, loose. And, and it went from that disco era to, yes, what you're talking about, the gangster rap. Gangster rap. And then you get your all these different artists who are coming out talking about blowing people's faces off, raping, pillaging the F-bomb. You got all of this. That didn't just happen organically. It happened overnight. It was a shift and it wasn't it wasn't natural. That didn't happen because of a cultural change that happened that fomented within the black rap community. No, it was imposed on them. It was put on them. And I think you're going to start to see more and more exposure. There was a uh, Vanity Fair article about late 90s, early 2000s that exposed that there was a meeting. It was a guy that came out. He was a whistleblower. And he came out and he said, guys, guys, this is not black artists promoting gangster rap. It is white record executives why would they do that why would they why would they promote violence and and rape and guns and drugs into the black community through their music what would be the only reason to do that to get the men out to leave single moms to leave victimed victimized single moms and children because you take the father and i don't care if you're a feminist i'm going to offend you in fact I don't care what your name is. Chances are I'm going to say something to offend you. We've already done that with the feminists. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. So welcome aboard. I'm going to say something you're not going to like and probably do a lot of you. Um, And that is a home without a father is not complete. It's not stable. And the Mm. children don't get everything that they need. Now, God bless the single moms that have been put into that position. I understand. Uh, My mom was single for a short time before stepfather came in. I had a father with mental illness issues that he's still institutionalized today in his 70s. He barely can put anything together. He has no concept of what is really going on around him. And I had a stepfather who, when he came in, was a drinker. He was angry. He didn't want these two little boys that he suddenly inherited. He, he, he He was a big man to take them in and to take us in and to accept us and to treat us as his children. We treated him like garbage. Okay. My brother and I treated him like garbage because he wasn't dad. Okay. And no matter how hard he tried, he wasn't going to be dad. And I did not have a good relationship with that man until I was grown, married and had children of my own. And then all of a sudden the light went on for me. Hey, this was a good man. And I could have learned a ton of stuff from him that I didn't benefit from. So I understand about daddy issues. I understand about single moms. I understand about the vacancy of having a father missing from the home. And I can tell you as an absolute statement of fact that the fact that some communities are having the fathers removed is intentional. It is absolutely intentional. It's a way of keeping the black neighborhoods depressed keeping them down, keeping them broken, keeping them dependent on the, the welfare system. It's no different than the plantations of the 1800s, early 1900s. It's Jim Crow, it's the KKK, and it's the same people doing it for the same reasons. It's interesting that you brought that up, you know, because if you, this, what you're describing is cultural Marxism. You go back to the origins of cultural Marxism and you, you start talking about uh, Marx, Freud, Hegel. Um, we're kind of the founders of this new, uh, I guess you could call it like an, it's almost like an intellectual theology. It's a very strange uh, system. You have come out of that Frankfurt school and you have Horkheimer, 
Marcuse and Adorno. Uh, then later, Noel Ignatiev, uh, you know, as an individual that, you know, coined, uh, well, he didn't exactly coin critical theory. That came out of Frankfurt School, but he had critical race theory. Then later you have, um, you know, uh, the nephew of Freud, Edward Bernays. He literally writes a book called Propaganda. Yep. Um, and most of, you know, I'm in advertising and marketing. Most of modern consumer advertising is really, it really comes out of Frankfurt School and it comes out of Bernays' propaganda. Mm-hmm. And it's a really destructive philosophy. It's, it's, it's the most um, atomizing, you know, uh, philosophy that you could imagine where you just, you annihilate society and you just, you, you destroy everything all the way down to the individual level. And just, you know, you turn everybody into these individualistic atomized consumers, right? And the against each point, other. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And the whole point of, you know, this cultural Marxist theory was the, the march through the institutions to transform the institution into an implement of, you know, global, I don't want to say Marxism, because that's not really, it's really a Trotskyite or Bolshevik, you know, um, ideology. And so to transform this weather underground, you know, if you wanted to talk about weather underground and Bill Ayers, he was just kind of at that time, a Marxist front man. Right. But the actual, the actual damage, what was going on behind the scenes in the institutions, that was where the real battle was being waged an ideological battle. And ultimately the American value system was just completely undermined with critical theory. And what's very interesting is what you mentioned is the same executives that were promoting this very culturally Marxist poison to up and coming and even in some instances, prosperous black neighborhoods that just just completely destroyed it. Once those neighborhoods were destroyed, they were affiliated. Obviously, they were being bankrolled by large, you know, finance capital, large banks. These large banks had real estate investments and some of the biggest sets of gentrification you see in the United States are in neighborhoods that were most affected by this poisonous doctrine. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I never, you know, I, I kind of knew all of this piecemeal, obviously, because I just regurgitated all of that. But I never really thought of it in a big picture sense before where you literally have this, this cultural Marxist doctrine. It went after the low hanging fruit, which was the impoverished black community. They just gotten through civil rights. Uh, really, they just started this, they started this competition in America, you know, and had just gotten their freedom uh, more or less in the civil rights era. I know slavery ended a while before, but really they, they were denizens or, or denizens before, before, you know, uh, the civil rights era. So they really had a disadvantage. They were starting to come up in the world and then boom, they get hit with just a successive wave of, and successive wave of just media poison, uh, really malicious banking practices, predatory lending, um, just the worst types of behavior. And all of these institutions were related and connected. The media industry was related to finance, related to real estate, and it just targeted them for destruction. And now you're seeing multi, multi, multi-million dollar high rises being built in what were historically black neighborhoods who were just, you know, 30 years ago on the rise and up and coming and been completely destroyed now. And the real estate prices are very cheap and it's affordable. And there was no other real area of the country to absorb in the large cities 
and to uh, you know develop from a realty perspective. This is I know this is like some three D chess here, but there 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 weren't really any other neighborhoods where you could go in and pull this scam. You know that wasn't going to go over well, but you could do it to them. It's a fantastic interview that I heard last night with uh, Kyra Davis. She writes for Red State, um, which is a conservative blog. She's black. Her husband is black. He grew up in the inner city of Gary, Indiana. And she was talking about, listen, black families are typically conservative. They love their children. They, they know how to manage money. They're very intelligent people. And they have been hoodwinked since the Johnson administration. Uh, you'll remember the famous quote from LBJ. Uh, LBJ fought the Civil Rights Amendment uh, back in 64. In fact, the longest, the longest, um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, when, when a senator gets up and... and um, the filibuster. filibusters. The longest filibuster in history, 75 hours, was by Democratic congressmen against the Civil Rights Act, okay? And when it finally passed and it got to Johnson's desk, he's famously quoted as saying, well, fine, if these people are going to vote, then I'm going to make sure that they vote Democrat for the next 200 years. Cynical, racist mean-spirited, kept in, intentionally keeping people in poverty and intentionally keeping young black men separated from their families, teaching them a culture of indifference to women, indifference to children, fathering babies, and, and abandoning them. Okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you this. I, it's not just the black community where you have um, negligent, um, absentee fatherism. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's most pronounced in that area right now. And we are seeing the biggest fruit of it right now. The riots, the, the sense of, of, uh, dependency and the sense of entitlement to dependency. You're seeing that rise up from a culture that has been taught that they are victims and forced into victimhood through the elimination of fathers and keeping them in crappy schools that, uh, same conversation they talked about. If, if conservatives want to win the black vote, you can win on one topic only, school choice. Give these moms a safe place mm. where they can feel good about sending their children to school because their children will thrive. Their children will succeed. They always do, unless you tell them long enough that they won't. And then eventually the, the, the swine mentality, the herd mentality, all of this stuff uh, will begin to work against them to keep them down. And we see that in impoverished neighborhoods where they keep each other down because they have been trained to think like slaves. It's such a so. sick cycle because you, you mentioned the, the plantation aspect of it. Candace Owens talks about this a lot. And, and, and when you think about it in the, that context and then in the context of them being able to vote any minority, any, any uh, oppressed uh, people, what you're saying is essentially we're going to breed you to vote for us, but it doesn't matter if you stick, stick around and take care of your family because what was happening during the slave trade, they would have babies and sell the babies or sell the husbands and keep the babies and, and do whatever. So it's this very just sick cycle that keeps repeating. And of course, we're not talking about slavery anymore. Now we're just talking about debt slavery or we're talking about just the entitlement mentality. I'm going to read off some... And not only that, if I can just interject one other thing, where does Planned Parenthood put most of their offices? In low-income places. Low-income neighborhoods every time. Half, and that last, last statistic I saw, half 
of the children aborted, butchered by Planned Parenthood are black. You don't think that's coincidence? Mm-hmm. No, that is intentional. They are, you know, they are. Well, the, the founders made very racist, derogatory comments about oh, no, that was the intention. Evil. Yeah, she was evil. But so now we've got we've got the family being dissolved from two different directions, promoting divorce, promoting absentee fatherhood, promoting abortion. Uh, and then the other side of this, the religion, because you have to have a religion to keep people in, in line. And that is they teach evolution. Evolution is a religion. Now, I'm sure that you can make a, a, a scientific case for the, for the origin of the species. That's fine. I'm not going to argue the science behind it, but I will argue that it's being used as a religion to control people. Why is that? Because if you evolve from the goo to the zoo to you, then you don't have value. You're just a protoplasm. You're just an overdeveloped group of cells. Right. So regardless of how you handle the science of evolution, the religion of, of evolution is you have no value. And that's being hammered into schools from kindergarten all the way through the university level. And you're treated as an absolute freak if you don't spout the official line on that. It's used to keep people down. It's used to eliminate fatherhood. So here's a, an infographic, and we'll post these in the show notes, but the infographic comes from the U.S. Census Bureau. And the headline says, The Father Absence Crisis in America. There's a crisis in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.7 million children, more than one in four, live without a father in the home. Consequently, there is a, quote, father factor in nearly all of the societal ills facing America today. Research shows when a child is raised in a father-absent home, he or she is affected in the following ways. ways. And it has a couple uh, graphics here, and I'm going to highlight a couple of them that we've already talked about. Poverty, four times greater risk of poverty, seven times more likely to be pregnant as a teen, more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to face abuse and neglect, two times greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, twice more likely to suffer obesity, more likely to commit a crime, and twice more likely to drop out of high school. You know what's interesting about all those stats, Sal? And I've been watching those for a long time. Um, like you mentioned, I was in the ministry for a long time. Um, is I want to turn the attention away from the impoverished and, and, and minority communities. Did you know that you can have all of those side effects with a fatherless affluent home? Mm. You can live in the nicest part of town. You can live in the gated community. You can have the pool. You can have the the you know, the Bentley in the driveway, whatever you want to call it, you can be affluent. But if that father is absent, even if he lives at that address, even if he still has the ring on his finger, if that father is absent, you're going to have all of those side effects. What do I mean by that? You're going to have teen pregnancy when the father is physically present, but emotionally absent or emotionally abusive, or only comes home in between business trips, isn't around much, mom's having to do all of the heavy lifting herself. And you hear me get impassioned about this, and I am not saying, hey, guys, look at me as the model of a father. I am a lousy father in a lot of regards. And for years, I was an absentee father. And because I, my work was keeping me out 
most of the time, a lot of the time, there's big periods of my children's life that I missed out on. And I'm raising boys. I have four teenage boys between the ages of 15 and 21. And I can see developmental differences between the ones that I was home a lot and the ones that I wasn't. I can see attitude differences between the ones I was home a lot and the ones that I wasn't. I'm telling you firsthand as a second-rate dad uh, by a lot of accounts that you don't have to be poor to be to, to suffer the ill effects of an absentee father. That's for sure. I can I can speak to the fact that I grew up in a fatherless home and my mother raised me as best as she could, worked crazy hours and still came home and cooked dinner. So I say this from maybe a, a, a prideful point of view, but at the same time, I beat those odds. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I made myself that promise. I, I clearly distinctly remember, and, and it sounds cliche now, almost kind of like out of a Hallmark movie, but I, I promised myself I would never be like my father. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I did, I went, I joined the military spent eight years in the army. I got out of the army, went to school, started a career. While it was in the midst of a career, I met my fiance while I was at school. Then we got married, had children. We live in a nice home. I'm a business owner. I'm a minority. I'm an immigrant. All of these statistics that we're talking about that should have worked against me. And to, to your point, it, it was that grounding in faith. It was that grounding in finding mentorship, finding other men. And, and we'll get into this in, in some of the other uh, positive sides of, of how we can combat this is finding male mentors, finding male totally. friends. I mean, if, if it wasn't for people like Quentin, when I grew up that took me under their wing and said, you know, come, come along and, and join our posse, you know, not gang, but you know, just group of friends. <laughs> I don't know where I would have been. It's easy for me to just kind of, you know, throw it out there and say, I could have been in a gang and I could have been a drug dealer. I could have been in prison. I don't know. I mean, I I was in a relatively upper middle class Southwest Houston suburb and it wasn't the best of schools. It wasn't the worst of schools. And it certainly got worse after Katrina, but I I was thankful that I graduated way before that. I mean, the murder murder rate went up 30% in, in that area after Katrina. So I'm, I'm thankful I got out of there, but mm-hmm. it's possible to get out of that statistic. And I think when people hear those statistics, there's the victim side of it where it's like, well, see, I'm never going to get out of this anyways. 70% of black homes or minority homes are fatherless and illiterate and they're not going to amount to anything. So why should I even strive? So what do you say to somebody who's stuck in that rut, who believes that they are that statistic? You know, what do you say to the single mother? What do you say to the father who tries to be a part of their family, but isn't being allowed to through the courts or just simply has made that conscious decision not to be a, a part of their family? It's kind of a loaded question with different parts. So take it oh, at, yeah. at your, your own uh, pace. To the single mom, I say, I admire you. Be strong. I, I, I want the single moms to feel empowered that they can be the best uh, parent to their children. Nobody knows a child like a, like a mom. Nobody is able to give care like a mom. And when that dad is absent, then they're carrying all that load by themselves. And I, and my heart hurts for that. 
um, what I would encourage them to do is to find men that they trust who have a skill. Um, see, I grew up without a lot of skills. So I have a friend who knows how to shoot guns. And I spent Saturday out on the gun range with him, with my boys, uh, because he can teach my boys things that I can't teach them. So even though the father is present and active, um, father, not every father needs to know everything. I didn't learn how to build. I didn't learn how to work on cars. So I apprenticed one of my boys to a mechanic. And I said, empower him and, you know, teach, fill in the gaps that I don't have, the things that the manhood things that I didn't learn. You yep. know, I, I had to learn how to go camping alongside my boys. So I'm always surrounding my, my boys with people who are more talented and smarter in certain areas than I am. And a single mom has the same thing that they need to do, whether it's a basketball coach, a, 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 a martial arts instructor, a, a mechanic, somebody that they trust with their children who doesn't mind having somebody come along and they'll take the time to impart. That's a gift. That's a skill set to take the patients, have the patience to take in somebody else's kid under your wing and invest in them. You had men like that that invested into your life. I bet you could name teachers, coaches, certainly military drill instructors, people who filled in that father role for you um, either before or, or during the military. To an yep. absentee father, to a father who has just given up and abandoned his children, the one thing that I would say to him is, you're trash. You're just trash. You either make it right or don't, don't pussyfoot around with this. If you've got children, take responsibility for them. If you're not going to take responsibility for them, I've got no words for you. You're just trash. You're just taking an entire generation and you're throwing it out. You're nothing. Now, Powerful. a father who has been, you know, and I understand I worked, my career kept me out way longer than I should have. And now a lot of it was managing expectations on my part, setting boundaries with employers. I didn't know how to do that. Uh, and my family suffered because of my lack of managing my time, my lack of boundaries. I let people walk all over me. I let people expect too much from me. And my family suffered because I was gone a lot. To somebody who's in that position, I would say, get trained, gain the skills of setting boundaries. Great book uh, by, uh, I don't remember the last names, Cloud and Townsend are the two authors, and it's called Boundaries. And it's about learning to set limits on what other people can expect from you so that you can put your priorities in your proper order in your life. And whether that's, you know, your spouse, your children, your work, your God, your faith, your social activities. I know absentee fathers that have just plain put ESPN above their children. End of story. Done. Guys, grow up. Yeah. Or PS5. There's no excuse for that. Whether you're a, a movie buff, which is fine. There's a place for movies. You're a Netflix guy. I get it. There's a time and a place for that. But it can't ever be in higher priority than their children or they will know it. And even if you're physically present, if your children know deep in their soul, whether you say it or not, if they know in their soul that something else is a higher priority than them, it will appear in their behavior eventually. And I don't like being the bearer of bad tidings, but this is the hard truth that you have to push through to get to the good news, which is it's not hard to be a successful dad. I'm going to pull up one other personal story. Um, when I was in high school, I got some awards. I was a musician. I had um, some opportunities where I was recognized and my parents were recognized with me. 
And so they called Chad Ketcher and his mom, Bonnie Liebelt. And I said, what about my dad? You've got to mention my dad. You've got to, hey, you, you forgot to say my dad's name. What was that about? My dad was lucky to even be there. My dad was mentally ill. He was dealing with emotional baggage that he had never dealt with, insecurities, problems. He was actually more abusive to me verbally and emotionally than anybody else. He framed half of the stuff that I've had to deal with my whole adult life. And yet I was crying out for somebody to recognize this abusive father in my life. What does that tell you? What that tells me is that even a bad dad is needed. Children need a father. They crave the, the, wow. the, they crave that fatherhood. So dad, let me just encourage you. If you feel like I have felt for long periods of time that you're just a failure, that you don't know what you're doing, that you don't know how to be a good dad, you know what? You've got the benefit on your, on your team of the fact that your kids want you to succeed. Your kids are going to bend over backwards to make sure they get some time with dad, even if you've been a jerk, even if you've been a loser. You've got kids that want you to succeed. You've got kids that want you to love them. As, and, and they'll take whatever little bit they can get from you. So yeah, you've will. already got, you've got that working for you. Now's the time to then take it to the next level and say, okay, how can I make my kids a higher priority? What do you do for fun? Include them in it. What do you do for work? Look for ways to include them in it. It's not hard. Being a good dad is not complicated. Now, if you've got some vices that you don't want to pass on to your children, then get over them yourself. And that's yeah, don't take them the, to the bar with you. No, that's probably the hardest, the hardest thing that a dad has to do is get over his own bad habits that he doesn't want to pass through to his children because they will take on who you are. They will. So I know a lot of guys are feeling like, oh my God, you know, if my, if my children start acting like me, then I got to deal with all of the, remember all those stupid things that I did in college, my single days and the fast cars and the loose women. Oh, I don't want my children to do that. Okay. Well then stop it yourself. You got a porn problem, get over it. Put it aside, get it, get, get it out of your life, get some accountability so that it doesn't pass down to your children. But if you're willing to do those kinds of things, being a successful dad is not difficult. And again, I'm not a great dad. I know some great dads. I will introduce you. I want you to talk to Mark Holden about fatherhood. Yeah. My friend, Mark Holden, seven children of his own. They're all grown. I think his last one is now a senior in high school. Um, that is a man who has a legacy of love for children and family. And that his, his book is called Warrior Dad. If you don't mind me promoting it, it's on Amazon, but it's Warrior Dad. It's by Mark Holden. You will learn some things in that book about being a successful father. And you're going to find out, wait a minute, I can totally do this. That's the good news. Being a good dad is not difficult. The, the really good news is that the bar is really low, especially with small children, meaning, <laughs> meaning yes. if you just show up. Right. Like my yes. kids will beg for me to play one round of Uno with them. And that's it. Like, I don't have to yes. take them out to eat to this huge. I don't have to take them to Disneyland. I don't have to buy my kid a pony, although that might be in the cards because yeah. where we live. But they just want you to show up. The bar is really low. So it, it's like really interesting. A lot of the things you're saying, because I, I mean, I had a dad. Um, he was very much a workaholic and he had a horrible example. Uh, said to him by his father, who was not a very good father, not necessarily a very bad man, just not a good father. And uh, my mom's dad was actually 
a pretty good father, but he was pretty abusive because he was a, a Vietnam veteran. He did multiple tours in Vietnam, uh, like two or three. Um, and uh, so when I was growing up, my dad was just completely uh, non-existent for the most part. Uh, he just worked all the time. It sounds like a very similar situation uh, to your children. And um, so I, I didn't have, I can't say I didn't have male role models. It's almost like none of my friends and I, like we all had dads and not a single one of them knew us or like even recognized that we existed. They were just working uh, literally six days a week on the seventh day. It, it was like football or race cars, you know, like not paying attention to any of us at all. Um, and my dad, because he didn't really have much of a male role model. And it, I don't think many of the men in the neighborhood did. I don't think any of them really did. They were all kind of That's like a huge pattern. The boomers. Yeah, yeah, they were all kind of like uh, typical um, suburbanite kind of men who had like sports as their um, actualization of masculinity. Yeah, you know, like that, that was their identity. It was a simulacrum of masculinity. And I just... I looked at I looked at him and I was like, man, I refuse to be like you. Like I, I I really did. I was like, I refuse to be like you. There was very little that I admired about him growing up, if anything, to be quite honest. Um, I didn't really resent him, but I was just like, I'm not gonna be like you. I didn't think he was very masculine. The things that he kind of revered as this this uh false masculinity I just thought was just kind of like watching other dudes who can do what you want to do so I, I viewed it as some sort of like psychological cuckoldry or something I, I don't really know and vicariously so through them right yeah and, and and so um I I went out in the woods I like poached on other people's property like shot animals and skinned them and went fishing and stole people's fish and whatnot out of their ponds and just stayed gone and like literally lived in the woods for long extended periods of time over the summer. It's a really strange thing. And, and, and just, uh, kind of like checked out of, of, uh, the modern world. Like I, I, it was really funny. Like before I was maybe like 15 or 16, I had like all of the skills from like the 19th or like 18th century, how to survive out in the woods. It was really strange. Davy Crockett uh, Alderman. Yeah, basically, basically, and it taught me a lot, uh, and it it taught me a lot about, uh, myself. And then, so I'm I'm a significant amount older than my siblings. And so when I'm, I'm an adult, I'm a police officer. They're like beginning high school or junior high or something at this point. Um, probably junior high. My my dad had years before tried to be more involved in our lives, but just with the, the absolute wrong way. Okay. You know, instead of spending any quality time, really, it was more like buying affection. He did that really hard with my brothers, and they just almost ruined them. They, I mean, they almost completely wrecked their lives because they were so spoiled, but they didn't have a very good uh, fatherly uh, foundation in their youth. They they were a real problem kids in, in junior high and high school. And, uh, it, it was almost like a pendulum effect. It was like the inverse reality of how I grew up where I had like, you know, not a whole lot of attention. I, me and my dad did have one hobby together and he spent a fortune on that hobby. But to be real honest with you, it was just, it was more or less his hobby 
that I participated in because I was trying to get to know him. Um, looking back on it, I have fond memories from that though, but it was still just like, I don't know that we had any real good times out of that, to be honest with you. Um, and then, you know, my brothers, it was like, it not exactly that he participated in their hobbies either. It was just like he bankrolled them, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, in, in ways that, you know, like I didn't get and wouldn't want, I just, it's not good for kids. And, uh, I don't think, uh, I had a good relationship and we have a good relationship now. Uh, but I don't think we had a real good relationship until pretty recently. Yeah. Um, but it, it was because I just, I, I will say this. You became a father though recently too. So that, that kind right, of sets yeah. a precedence mm-hmm. for that. Right. And, and, and like it, it, in a way, when I first became a father, it made me dislike him even more. And, and I'm, I'll be honest with you uh, yeah. for the first year or so I, I like disliked him even more. Um, and um, but to be honest with you, my dad's not a bad person. There's nothing. He's, he has no real problems uh, that, that make him a bad person. He's just, he just wasn't the greatest father. Now he wasn't the worst either. You know, like I, I and I recognized that when I was young, uh, but I look at a lot of men in society today and I became a cop. A lot of people are like, did you become a cop? Cause you wanted to serve? Yeah, of course. That's, that's like an, but I really wanted to test myself. I like really wanted to go out on my own by myself against someone else who was bad and see what I was made of, you know? Uh, and, 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 and I didn't realize that's what I was doing at the time, but looking back on it, you know, I, that is probably one of my mentalities that I had. Mm-hmm. And I knew what I was made of when I walked away from that career. I knew how far I was willing to go to defend myself or to defend other people or to protect the community. Uh, you know, I, I knew that I would, I would make the ultimate sacrifice if I had to be. And I, I felt pretty good about myself when I left, but I don't feel like most men. And I think one of the biggest problems with my dad and with men like him is they are untested. And there are especially a lot of men like that from that age group that are just untested um, and, and it's not their fault and maybe they don't even realize it, but what was portrayed to them as the pinnacle of masculinity and success was, you know, like Mr. Cleaver, you know, yeah. it, it was this, this, this working guy, you know, who d- just really kind of had some interaction with his kids, but he was just like this overarching figure that just paid the bills. Right. That was like the most, and and that's a very respectable thing too, but that was the most revered one of the most revered characters in in you know a lot of these uh fatherless young men's lives were, were people like mr cleaver and, and there's a lot of examples of those guys in like sitcoms and in tv drama you go from like mr that. cleaver to al bundy though and that's yeah. a huge problem that's <laughs> yeah. exactly where i was going with yeah. that have you ever noticed okay you've got all of these great tv shows in the 50s and 60s where you had a strong you know Make room for daddy, or whatever these shows were, where they had a strong male. Yeah, or even all in the family. You know? All in the family, which was groundbreaking at its time. But have you noticed that the commercials? What do the commercial families do? Mom is the one that keeps the whole family together, and dad is a bumbling idiot. Yeah, the bumbling idiot dad model has been the standard model for American advertising for well over twenty-five, maybe thirty, thirty-five years. Absolutely. Now, where you by know, design. It, yeah, by design. That's intentional. And I like what you said, uh, Quentin, about 
you went out in the woods and you taught yourself the man's skills that you knew that you needed. There's something, there's rugged outdoors. There's, uh, there's a, there's a getting back to fundamentals for you. Um, I wrote, I wrote a health and fitness blog. I actually ghost wrote a health and fitness blog for a chiropractor for many years. And his whole thing was about getting back to the fundamentals. How did we used to eat? How did we used to, we walked barefoot. We did squats. We, that's how we sat around the campfire was in a squat. How many people now couldn't even get down into a squat without pulling a muscle because that's, now we sit in chairs. We worked right. outdoors. We didn't have air conditioning and we were healthier. Okay, maybe there were periods of time where disease came in and, and people didn't live as long. But the original model is 120 years. And when you get back to the fundamentals of the way we were designed to eat, the ways we were designed to work, the ways we were designed to live, and the ways we were designed to raise children, I, one of the things that I love so deeply about, there are, there are different religious communities, different faiths that, that bring a lot to the table. One of my favorites is the Jewish uh, tradition, because the, man, the man's role in the Jewish family is central. And the father's blessing, he lays his hands on his children's head, he speaks a blessing over them. Um, how many people in our generation are lacking, are, are, they're insecure, they're unstable, they'll follow any gang that will give them identity because the father didn't bless them. And it's a, I, I, know that's a, I know that's kind of a religious word, but when you, lay, when you impart words of, I value you, to your children, I uh, I believe in you. I um, I am proud of you. It, we didn't hear that, and and there was generations of people, especially I grew up in Minnesota. Everybody's Norwegian, and, and Norwegians have a you know typically stereotypically have this emotional frame that's about an inch deep, and they just they don't they don't emote a lot. They don't, ex they're not expressive people. You get the Latins, you get the Italians, you get the Irish, they're expressive, they're barking at each other. And it's great. It's fun. You know, they yell at each other, they slap each it's other. Actually it's much great. more healthy. Yeah. Right. There's a, <laughs> and in the, in the Midwest, there is just this emotional kind of barrier, this very stable, very intellectual, very whatever that everybody around me, nobody. The classical stoic. The classical it's very, stoic. It's very strange too, because if you go back into like, I don't know if you went back into those people's ancient history, complete, complete opposite. They've, totally. they've become like the inverse of their like ancient, yeah. you know, uh, past. And it's I think we can learn from all of these, these ancient, when you go back and look at where we came from, what was our original design? Who I was going to say that, you know, I think a lot of the problem, what you, what you brought up with the, the Jewish community, uh, it's interesting because, you know, Christians had that. Mm -hmm. In this country up until very recently, but I think what really killed it was the modern like prosperity gospel. I'm not saying don't be prosperous, but there's mm -hmm. a lot in the prosperity type gospels out there that are too uh, self-centered and, and too focused on the material, right? And the whole purpose mm -hmm. for any sort of spirituality like that is the immaterial. It's, it's not necessarily the material world or, or how you feel in this world necessarily, you know, I mean, if you look at the Bible, the, the, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, but now everybody wants to be first and first. So, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's really weird. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I agree with what you said there uh, because I, I think that that's something we had and we don't, 
anymore. Yeah. Uh, as a if you go back, let's go back to the 1860s. Okay, Civil War time, maybe the uh, during the Reconstruction, that that whole um, the antebellum, the, the, the whole 1800s, you know, and even back into the 1700s. Okay, you have a nuclear family. Father works out in the field, or he works in the forest. He's a hunter. He's a gatherer. He's uh, he's got a crop that he's raising. He's raising his family, but he's always there. He's always around. And when children come up through, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, there comes a point where after being tutored by mom to a certain degree, now they go out in the field, the sons go out in the field and they work with father. Or if he's a blacksmith, they learn the trade, the family business, the family trade. We learn that it passed through because dad worked in the home. His shop may have been outside, but he worked in the close proximity of the house. What happened? Industrial revolution. Now, Father can't make a living with his metal shop, but he can go to the factory. And now he's gone. At that time, it was like 12-hour workdays, 6 to, or 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. He comes home. He's tired. His children haven't seen him all day. Now, when Junior gets to be 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, now he can get a job over at the same factory, and he might see his father there. But that industrial revolution, for all of its strengths, for all of the benefits that created, one of the core failures of the industrial revolution was removing father from the, from the core, from, from the, the central household. And then you get down into World War II, World War I and II, where we're sending the young men off to battle. Now the women come out and they go into the workplace. Now don't send me, send me angry letters about women's right to work and, and all of that. I get that. If you no, but it really skills, did prep for a two-income household. I it mean, did. It did. It set, up, it set up that need for a two-income household. And what did that do? It created this market for, I've got all this money to spend. Well, why don't you go live in a bigger house? Why don't yeah. you go buy these conveniences? Why don't you go buy? Now you're in debt up to your eyeballs. You need to have two occupations. So now... Marxists will raise your children for you. And now I'm seeing states where there's mandatory pre-kindergarten. Why would they do that? Why would they? Because the brainwashing has to start earlier in the process. Forgive me if I'm cynical, but the destruction of the nuclear family first by removing father from household employment out to separate workplace and then mother, and then the children have to be schooled. Public school did not exist prior to about 1900. And you guys, you've heard of the Dewey Decimal System, the guy who put the three-digit numbers on all your library books. He was a Marxist. And he is one of the fathers <laughs> of public education. He was an absolute monster. And the more you read about him and his ties to, to that German school, that whole group of people that are like, what can we do to pull first? Okay, let's get faith away. Now let's get the nuclear family broken down. Now we can have an entire generation of people who are just obedient to the state. There is no God but the state. Now we can have all these people. It's intentional. And the only way out is to get fathers and mothers together, not divorcing at the rate of 50%. No, that doesn't cut it. But keeping fathers and mothers who stick through it through thick and thin and raise their children together and take responsibility for it. We homeschooled all of my boys for years. Was it difficult? Yes. Did we sacrifice a lot of luxury because my wife was not able to work outside the home? Absolutely we did. Is it worth it? Don't ever ask me that question. I will hammer you about it because there are certain things that are more valuable, more important, and that is making sure 
that the children that I raise carry the values that we want the impart not only my values, my values or whatever my values are, but th yeah. there are certain values that we want to instill into them and they are not the same values that my Marxist public school wants to teach them. No, I want to back up not. just a, a little bit, guys. You, you talked a lot about, Quentin, the, the elemental aspects and returning to the, the, the core manhood. Um, I was about to touch on that, yeah. But yeah. There, there's a really just powerful book. It was recommended to me by a friend um, from South Africa. Um, the, the name of the book is called Healing the Masculine Soul, and it's by Gordon Delby. I'm going to just read a quick excerpt from the thepeacecorpsworldwide.org, which he was a part of the Peace Corps. There's a tear in the Western masculine soul, and many men struggle with how to make themselves whole, given this wound. Gordon Delby draws on a ritual he witnessed during his Peace Corps tour in Nigeria to suggest potential solutions. Based on the calling out ceremony in the yes. Igbo tribe, the yes. male initiation rite, where boys were required to leave the mother's hut and join the men of the tribe, Delby asserts that in Western societies, most men never have a clear-cut opportunity to bond with men, often including their fathers. And that in the book, there's almost a, a full two, three pages that goes into this ritual. I'm going to touch on just the highlights of it. The boy, the young man in this tribe lives with his mother in his own hut with his mother. The father lives in his own hut. And obviously there's, you know, consummating that happens with, within the tribe and within the marriage. But the father does live on his own. That is not to say that he's absent, but he does live in his own hut. Um, whether they're monogamous or not, I can't comment on that. I don't recall. But there's a specific ritual that is the calling out ritual. And the mother doesn't know, the child doesn't know, but the tribe knows and the elders know. And it happens either very, very early in the evening or very late into the night. And you start hearing war drums, essentially. Mm -hmm. The elders come, to, and I'm getting chills just talking about it. The <laughs> elders come to the mother's hut and the father is amongst these men, not just a father, grant you. It's the men of the tribe, yes. the warriors. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it because it's so powerful. And he calls to his son and he says, bring me my son bring me my son. And, the, and naturally, the child is afraid, right? He's stepping into something new. He's fearful. He's clutching onto his mother. And, and the story is just so, so powerful. He's grabbing onto his mother and there's war drums and there's fire and all this stuff happening outside. And he's demanding, bring me my son, bring me my son, until finally the mother releases him and says, you've got to go, pushes him out into the world, pushes him out into the men, and he embraces his son. And from then on, he stays with his father. He learns his trade. He goes hunting. He does all the things that a man would do in the tribe. And that is something that is just so powerful that I wish more, not just Christian men, but just men in general would grasp that concept of calling out their sons, calling out their children, yes. male or female, calling out their children to empower them. And I love the fact that you brought up the blessings and, and how you can speak life over them and, and give them gratitudes and worthies is a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Carlos Campos talks about is mm, mm -hmm. giving them praise for what they're good at and telling them what they're worthy of. You are worthy of this particular thing that you want. And it can be material or immaterial, but you are worthy. You are capable. And here I am as your father to lead you in how you can get there, what tools you need, what resources, what people I can connect you with. So I think that's just a huge, huge part that's 
that's been missing for quite some time. So I just wanted to bring it back to the, the elemental aspect of that. And, yeah, and we have no rites of passage in the West anymore. That's exactly right. And I was, we I was going to, it's the military. This. <laughs> um, it, you know, so one of my biggest influences, a, a masculine influence in my life until he passed, um, when, and I was in my like early teens, I think, um, was my great grandfather. And, um, he was, uh, he, he was in the Navy in, in World War II and did all the island hopping. Uh, he was like a CB, but uh, he ended up, he was in Guad- Guadalcanal when all of that stuff went down. And then Tarawa, when they were trying to clear the beaches there, and he'd, saw, he'd seen some really bad stuff. He did demolitions and other things. Um, but uh, he grew up a farmer. And, uh, you know, his family actually had a farm in Louisiana. They come from Midwest. And, and uh I don't, I don't know if there's so much that kind of, uh, I don't want to call them emotionally crippled because that's, that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of like the, the Midwest, uh, but, but, you know, the, withdrawn, you know, introspective and withdrawn, but he was a farmer and he was a farmer until the day he died. And there was something I noticed about him, even though he was actually very wealthy, a very independently wealthy guy, he did not value money at all. He would just give it away. Um, and he did often, he, he drove an old, beat up El Camino and lived in a very small house and had, I mean, an oil fortune literally. And, uh, just gave all his money away. He didn't care because at the end of the day, he was a farmer and he would go and till the field and he would see every day what it was that he produced. And society was like that. Well, since, since we formed society, I mean, society uh, formed around uh, agriculture, right? So civilization is built around this um, you have, you know, farmers, landowners, and then you have craftsmen, uh, and even just farm workers in any given class strata, right? But all of these people at one time worked for themselves or a master, but at the end of the day, they were taken care of and they saw the fruits of their labor every day. It doesn't matter what you did. If you were a slave or if you were the king, you, you did something, you did some sort of labor or toil. And you saw the fruits of it daily. And it wasn't a simulacrum of fruits like in, in money where it's this, you know, it's a representation of your value and worth, not in physical production, but in this, you know, copy of it. And so we had, you know, if you look back at the Spartans, their rite of passage, it's not the only one. People think, oh, well, the Spartan Agogi, that's like the only thing Europe has to like a rite of passage on. That isn't true. It's just very well documented. There's thousands of them across Europe, across the West, where you have this, and, and you still see it in like the Mennonite and Amish community. The Agoji wasn't so different than what those kids go through every day on the farm. So uh, you had this rite of passage where you were becoming a man and you would take over and it was martial. At, at the end of the day, almost all of our rites of passage were martial, but the most are, you know, that's your function as a man. You could go into gender roles. That's a story from another story for another day, but uh, it is this martial aspect of society and there is this, this facilitation of this mentality from the time of a boy's probably five years old. But today we're so removed from this because, you know, just until, I mean, my great grandfather's only been dead for, you know, 15 years or something now, but you had this, element of society it was still a huge portion of our society until very recently 
where these men knew exactly where they stood. They knew the score and they, they knew what they were worth and they knew what their efforts were worth and their identity wasn't tied to money. They weren't so easily bought. They weren't so easily persuaded because they were grounded and they had roots. They had value to themselves and to their family. And now you have the Mr. Cleaver, right? I go to work at uh, this random place. I toil. I don't really understand what I'm working towards. I see no fruits of my labor, but then I'm told this pile of paper is what I'm worth. And then if I want to feel value, if I want to be cool, all of the stuff on TV will tell me exactly how to achieve that in, in the form of items that I purchase and fill my house with. And I've noticed this in a lot of men in my life where their masculinity is directly attributed to the things they have and how they can lord it over you. We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-designed websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash new normal and save 20% on your custom website today. So that's it's the like, Bernays model. That's the, you've been it commercialized. Is it is. You've been, yep. you've been, it is Bernays. Given propaganda and, to say that this is the American dream. You need that bigger house, that second car, the, the fancier yep. thing because keeping up with the Joneses. Yep. And, and, and people wonder why, why are men so depressed? Why do they cheat on their wives? Why do they have a, other families? You know, the litany, of, of problems that plague the modern man, right? Why? They're not fulfilled. And no amount of money and no amount of crap they put in their house is going to satisfy that. Anything that is not actual, uh, physical or tangible actualization of their masculine nature or their masculinity is just not going to suffice. And basically what they've been taught to value is this really feminine material culture that's why you kind of see this whole metrosexual thing that came out, you know, like 10, 15 years ago and kind of like the merger of uh, consumer identities and all of this very strange stuff occurring in society. It's because it just, it's, it's just the, the, uh, the furthest expression or, or, or the deepest expression of materialism. And, and I, don't, I don't think we're going to fix society until men realize that's what actually happened to you. Your destiny was taken from you your production was basically taken from you and no amount of stuff that you fill in your life is going to fix it. And certainly not ignoring your kids because you think an extra 30 minutes on the television, watching some guy actually be masculine is going to fix it. Nothing's going to fix it. Your whole life is corrupted at this point. But and let me turn this around for just a second. Cause I agree with every bit of that. That is fantastic. You are absolutely right. And it links back to, father being taken from his home business and put into the factory system. Yeah, okay, absolutely. These things are all tied to each other. Um, the knighthood system. Okay. Uh, there's a great book and, and Mark Holden's book references raising a modern day knight. And it walks fathers through the process of bringing children up for their, there's the, I'm at home with mom stage. There's the apprentice, there's the um, uh, page stage there's the uh, um uh the, the apprentice stage and then there's the knighthood and they they basically align to the ages of up to about seven or eight and then 14 or 15 
And then from 14 to 17, they're learning the trade. They're learning that to apprentice to a knight or to a blacksmith or whatever. They're learning the trade. And then at 21, they step out into their own. And there was a rite of passage that went along with that. There was a coat of arms. There was a crest. There was a, 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 a sometimes it's a shield or it's a breastplate or it's a seal that goes on the door that says, I am a man now. I own the following. I have the rights to these things. And I, but more importantly, I have the responsibilities. The list of a knight's responsibilities is much longer than his list of rights. And that's, I think, the way that a, that a, uh, a healthy society functions is when I'm less interested in my rights and more interested in my responsibilities. But here's where I'm going to tie back to what you said again. The fulfillment is not from the, the, the accumulation of the trinkets of having worked for this fiat system the the fulfillment comes from i have brought a person into the world and i have raised him up to be a successful human being you know my success will come and go i'll have my 15 minutes of fame like everybody else but what my children then take out with them are they successful can they handle money can they be gentle and kind with a wife can they raise children could they lead a business and maybe they're not leaders maybe but could they provide excellent service and excellent uh skills do they bring excellence to the marketplace do they serve their community beyond just their own family do they bring something of value to the world beyond just themselves that to me is fulfilling to see my children uh, you know, a, a lady comes to the door and her arms are full of groceries and they jump up and open the door and hold it for her and bless her as she walks through. Okay, that to me suggests that I have done something to bring value to the world, not my paycheck. My paycheck suggests that I have brought value to a certain whatever, but to see my children self-activate into behaviors that bring value to the greater world, to bless somebody else, to serve, to lead, to whatever that looks like, that is real fulfillment. And it's not impossible for a dad to have. If you think, oh, I don't know how to do that, it's easier than you think. And the first thing you need to do is to apprentice yourself to a father who's got what you want. You know, Find somebody who's got what you want and do what they did to get it, okay? Find a father who's got great kids, and no kid is perfect, and kids make bad choices. Kids do dumb things. Yeah, whatever. Okay, but you see a kid whose basic motivation is towards not being good and not being, you know, a good Christian kid because good Christian kids sleep around. Ask me how I know. I was a good model church-going boy who was sleeping around. And the only reason I didn't get into heavy drinking and drugs and everything else is because I didn't like to throw up. And I was really deathly afraid of being sick. And so it was fear that kept me from those bad behaviors. But I was a good church boy and I got myself into some really, really bad situations. So being good is not the goal. Being a value, being a person of character, a person of value, a person that, um, that brings something of, of value to the world that is fulfilling. That is satisfying to a man. And when you invest yourself into that return, that's when you're going to find that your children bring more value. So the fatherlessness is removed 
when fathers start to recognize that real satisfaction and real fulfillment comes from investing yourself into raising, you know, the, uh, you know, we're, we are only, we are only tall because we stand on the shoulders of giants. Be the giant that your children stand on your shoulders. Your ceiling becomes their floor. And when you do that, when you see your children go higher and better than you ever thought you could, God, that's fulfilling. God, that's rewarding. And all of my friends who are older, whose children are grown and have gone on and have done better than the father themselves, these men live fulfilled, joyful, satisfying lives. It's, and it's so it's great an to see that because you, you, you can actually apply this outside of fatherhood if you want to be successful in your business. Right. If you want to be successful as an employee, if you want yes. to be successful, period, is taking those investments in figuring out how you bring value. Chad and I, you, you, we know each other from Danny Johnson events. And, and this is mm-hmm. a great time to, to talk about the fact that when I first went to a Danny Johnson event, which is called First Steps to Success, and this is not a plug or an endorsement, however, it, it did change our lives and it did yeah. have meaningful results. I went for the stereotypical reason, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let y'all in on a little secret, and thankfully, we don't have that many listeners, so it's not going to give away too much. <laughs> so hopefully, Danny doesn't get mad at me. But I went to better my business, mm-hmm. to 10x my business, to paid off debt, to live that fulfilled, cliche American dream, and that's how, for all intents and purposes, a Danny Johnson event is sold. How do you 10x your business? How do you 10x your relationships? How do you 10x your, your investments? All of that good stuff. I walked away from that realizing that my priorities were so jacked up, so backwards. And, and you talked about this. My priorities were 10xing my business, making more money. Because if I work harder and make more money, then my family will love me. That was the mentality. <laughs> I that it. I had going into uh, it. And my world was flipped on its head when my priorities became not being the Pharaoh of my home, but being the Moses and the Abraham Ooh. of my home. Strong. Yeah, that was fantastic. to the bone. And, yeah. and I think that's, that's a huge takeaway, not only from, from going to one of those type of events, but just Taking, taking some time to invest in yourself. There are great mentors, great coaches, and there's no shame. I just came out of a five-day parenting challenge, five-day parenting conference um, awesome. to be better a parent. To, and, and, and there was the bait and switch. Guess what? It's not about fixing your kids. It's about fixing you mm-hmm. and your connections. You and your connection right. to your heavenly father, if, if that's, you know, the route that you want to go in, we're not here to sell any particular brand, but you and your connection to a spiritual father, yeah. and then the connection you have with your spouse, only then can you have a truly meaningful connection with your children. And it's not too late. If, if I got anything out of it, because I have kids who are 18 and out of the home, and I have kids who are, you know, five and six and, and who I'm, you know, rearing up now. The message is it's not too late. Chad, you touched on it very briefly. It is not too late. It is never too late. The best thing a dad can do for his kids is love their mom. To be solid in that relationship, to be honoring in that relationship. Um, if you're just not able to, to you know, honor your wife and love your wife, what is wrong with you? 
get it fixed, get it fixed because your children need to see that, but it's totally easy. It's totally, it's totally possible for you to have that, to, to, to be the kind of man that you would want your children to have for a dad. It's, it's totally, it can be done. I was not, I, I am not a, a great role model for, in a lot of regards, there's a lot of people would, a lot of Christians would tell me I'm a terrible human being. Um, but I want to be the kind of man, a man of integrity, a man that loves uh, and serves my family, my children, so that when I do screw it up, do you know that um, doctors who have really good bedside manner, who have good people skills, get sued half as much as doctors who have lousy people skills? Hmm, it's not because they're better doctors. It's not because they make fewer mistakes. It's because relationship makes all the difference. And investing taking the time to invest in caring about making somebody else feel cared for makes all the difference. And so I love the fact Quentin's got this great grandfather that he loved and had that connection with. Uh, I've had a business for years. I interview the elderly. I get their life stories on video. So, and I give it to the family as a DVD uh, so that they can show the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren, hey, this is what your great-grandfather was like. Hey, listen to him tell this joke. Only he can tell this joke, but you got to hear it. Or listen to him tell this story of when he was in the Navy. And when you hear it first person like that, there is an impartation that goes with that. There is, I realize where my roots come from because I heard my grandpa tell me his grandpa's story. I get that, that bridge back to previous generations. I call the business generation bridge media. So I bridge back and I find my roots. And in our jet set culture where I, mom went to school over here and daughter went to school there and grandma's gone here and everybody's off in different parts of the country, we have lost the anchor of who we are. And that anchor is fatherhood. It's that familyhood. It's that place where the family stories, remember the sitting around the campfire. I mean, for seven millennia, we sat around the campfires and the father told the stories of the elders. They told the generations where we came from, who we are, where does our name come from? What does it mean? What am I a part of? I am a part of something bigger than myself. Children need that. And because we lack that anchor to where we came from and who we are and what larger thing we're a part of, we drift helplessly looking for a gang or looking for a job or looking for something to anchor our identity to. It's another thing that Jews do really, really well is they father, when they bless them, they say, this is who I am. This is the family that we belong to. These are the values we hold. And they get the children to repeat them back. They say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is what we believe in. This is where we come from. And having an anchor to something larger than just myself takes self-centeredness out of the picture. Self-centeredness mm. comes from an absence of having something bigger to be a part yeah, of. The ego. And when a father can impart that into his children, and it's not hard, it's just spending the time telling the stories, talking, investing in, um, in, in putting yourself into their lives. So. And that's, I, that's a you know a tenet of cultural Marxism is this rootless cosmopolitan yes. uh, ideology, and you know um, it's unfortunate because the the black community really didn't you know most of them still to this day have no idea where they they actually came from right they can claim a state mm -hmm. uh, but they have no idea really what country who they are what tribe 
their last name, what it, what it really was. Uh, and so they're the low hanging fruit really to go after, but really what you've seen from the 1990s and on is this attack on, uh, people of European descent, especially most recently, you can't be proud of being, you know, German or English or Italian or anything. It's all colonialism. It's all hateful. It's, it's Hitler or whatever. Just, it, it's constant. And, and you're told to hate yourself because of these past injustices that your, your family may or may not have been a part of. I mean, the vast majority of people actually weren't a part of any injustice at all. Um, and in most cultures, didn't really do do much to people with the exception of a couple. Um, but really that was all the elites and the average person was a really nice, decent human being who, who wanted good things for their people and other people. But you, you just can't be proud of who you are. It's, it's the, an attack on, on Western identity to allow our children and, you know, their children to accept a new form of tribalism. This, this, yeah. uh, I don't even know what to call it because, you know, that's why you see so many of these, these kids that are out there with the, uh, the rioters, you know, it's because they don't have an identity. Their parents, their, their families have no idea where they came from. They were told not to care about it. We're all Americans. And then they redefined what that meant every, you know, 10 years. And now I have no value, no belonging, no, no click, no tribe, nothing. I'm just, I'm just kind of like this person who I, I can, I have an identity based on comic book superheroes and the little tribal community that's associated with that. And then whatever other, you know, outrage culture that's been foisted on me in the moment or whatever. And then, so they go and join, you know, in with these rioters to bring down as, you know, a, an institution they feel has been unjust and they were a part of, and they have to atone for now. And it's this, it's a very strange thing where we're, it, we're going to hit this point like a year zero, right, in, in uh, Bolshevism where uh, there, there is no past. There's nothing to hold on to. You are just an empty vessel and we will fill you with whatever it is you are supposed to hold. And you're really seeing that play out now. Really a result. All of the things you're seeing play out on TV are basically a result of people having no identity. And, and identity can be, don't get me wrong, identity is, depending on what it is, can be really destructive. But most of the time, it's not. Like, the vast majority of the time, it's not. It's really good. It keeps you grounded. You have roots. You, you learn to value other people's cultures through your own identity and sharing values with them. And if nobody has identity then basically the, there's no real value in that person as a placeholder for diversity, right? It's, you, lose that, you lose that bridge. Like, I can't even value you and your diversity because you don't have an identity and now you're just an obstacle to my success. It's a, it's a real way to, you know, uh, to pit, it's a way to pit people against each other and, and right. probably the because, most vicious way. And we haven't really seen it play out yet, but we're no. going to really soon. Because if you don't have an identity, and I don't have an identity, then I have no moral code to prevent me from just destroying it. None. Yeah, none. You're just in my way and you are a problem. Yeah. And then it becomes, uh, we're back to survival of the fittest. Yeah, or maybe even something something more bizarre. You know, more animalistic. We're just yeah, animals that, at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, survival of the fittest, at least there's some sort of ethos behind that if you will but right. whatever we're no, <laughs> being fit's not really valued either so i, I no. don't really know what we're like some sort of primordial ooze is what we're yeah. headed towards or something 
we're, we're being fattened up for slaughter too. That's an entirely other discussion that we just don't even <laughs> yeah. need to get into yet. Well, the V for Vendetta takes place in the year 2020 and Soylent Green takes place in the year 2024. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we might yeah. be in a self-fulfilling prophecy thanks to the media. Yeah, they do that. Chad, you have been just an awesome, awesome guest. You've given wow. us so many nuggets. I don't know that you could pick just one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this question that I give all of our, all of our guests. Sure. If you had access to a billboard and you can give a message to give to our listeners, to give to folks who are driving down the highway, what would you put on that billboard to call their attention to fatherhood? The fatherhood. Okay, thank you for putting a frame on it because I got like 40 billboards in my head right now. Okay. Um, I would put something like this. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going into ad copywriter mode now. So I'm like, okay, how can I say this in seven words? Um, for fatherhood, if I was going to put up a billboard about fatherhood, I would say, um, God, it's hard. It's not hard. It's worth it. Um, um, it um, because sometimes fatherhood hurts. And sometimes, wow. sometimes there are responsibilities that suck. And sometimes your children don't like you. Sometimes your children hate you. I would rather them hate me because I was doing what was right than they hate me because I was just not there at all. Because at least if they hate me because I was doing what, was, what I felt was best for them, they'll come around. I came around. I was 30. I had kids of my own, but I came around because I began to realize and recognize the value of what my stepfather had done for me with no benefit to himself. Mm. So yeah, sometimes fatherhood hurts, but it is the only investment that never fails. And it's the only one that pays from now on, the fatherhood investment will pay for generations long after you're dead. And the failure to make that investment will also pay for generations after you're dead. And okay. so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of, I'm, again, I'm trying to get it down to billboard size copy. No, I think you had it. You no, said sometimes awesome. fatherhood hurts, period but it's uh-huh. worth it, period. Yeah. I love and it. That's so good. It is so worth it. It is so rewarding. Um, and, 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 but you got to be ready to play the long game. Yeah. Got to be ready to play the long game. Things that seeds that you plant when your kids are three and four and six won't play out until they're 30, 40 and 60. Uh, but play the long game and be patient with the process, but, but put forth the effort don't be afraid to make a mistake. Just uh, uh, do, do what you think is right. Do what you mm-hmm. sense is right. Partner up with a good father. Partner up with a father who's got the results that you want to improve your odds. Yeah. And then give it everything. Give it, give it all you got. Put it ahead of your career. 
You gave some great resources. There was uh, the book that I recommended, Healing the Masculine Soul by Gordon Delby, Warrior Dad by Mark Holden, and Raising Mm -hmm. a Modern Day Knight. We're going to put all of those links in the show description. Chad, if you'll allow me, I just want to give my gratitude to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your absolute just history and love of storytelling and giving us such a vulnerable uh, point of view from from your experiences and and Quentin as well talking about your dad and you know gratitude for myself for for having a father list home that still got me to where I am today and recognizing the importance of fatherhood so Chad once again thank you so much for your time thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you I look forward to um, getting to know you more where can people find you and and how can they reach out to you uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, just my, my personal page on Facebook is where you'll see, you know, pictures of my kids and whatever else. I, uh, I try to keep that separate from my business. My business website, uh, is Chad Catcher Media and I have a Facebook, uh, and a YouTube page that go along with that too. I, w- I work in video production now and, uh, and copywriting and plus, uh, Generation Bridge Media has its own, uh, website and, uh, and YouTube page. So, Lots of places to find me if you go looking. But guys, thank you. Uh, Sal, I'm so honored that you had me on. Thank you for giving me a platform to speak uh, to your listeners. I am so blessed and honored by this. Uh, and I hope that we impact some dad to just make one little change today uh, for all the better. Quentin, awesome. thank you for your time. And thanks for being so open. Great talk, man. Thank you so, so much. Thank you guys for listening. As always, you can find us on your favorite podcasting platform. You can subscribe on iTunes, on Spotify. Please, if you found value in this, leave us a comment on our Facebook page. Leave us a review or comment on our iTunes. And as always, stay safe and welcome to the new normal.